This is the Washington Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Well, welcome, everybody, to tonight's Indivisible Town Hall with our favorite Congresswoman, Pramila Jayapal. I'm your producer, Kat Pipkin. Special thanks tonight to Lysander Ludwig and Marty Tallarico for their help with tonight's Town Hall. Congresswoman, Pramila Jayapal, hardly needs an introduction at this point, particularly not with tonight's audience. She was first elected to Congress in 2016 to represent Washington's 7th Congressional District, and since then has become one of the most prominent Democrats in Washington, currently serving as senior whip. She's also a champion for progressive issues, serving as the chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus since 2021. And with that, I will hand things over to our moderator, Stephen Cox. Well, hello, hello, everybody. Kat, thank you so much. And uh, Congresswoman, such a pleasure as always. Uh, first and foremost, it was just your birthday, so happy belated birthday to you. <laughs> Thank you, Stefan. It is uh, it's another year around the sun, a year filled with joy and justice, we hope. Joy and justice. I, I like that very much. I'm going to get that put on a T-shirt. So, look, uh, as I was saying before uh, we got started here tonight, we've asked you here in part to help people really get excited about the final stretch here before the election. And, you know, as chair, I was struck by something you said uh, as chair of the Progressive Caucus uh, recently. You said you want to make sure that voters are seeing Democrats, quote unquote, fingerprints on the achievements of the last two years. And, you know, there's a lot, right? There's the Inflation Reduction Act. There's the Infrastructure Pact package, the bipartisan gun legislation, the CHIPS Act, historic job creation, shots in arms, just on and on and on. This is actually more than most presidents accomplish in their first terms. And yet that's not the media narrative. So, so how do we convey to swing voters just how much the Democrats have really managed to accomplish here? Yeah, it's such an important question. And first of all, it is always great to be with Indivisible Washington. So I want to thank you. I want to thank Kat and everybody that makes Indivisible possible. Um, you have really changed the narrative across the country, including here in Washington State. So just always very grateful to you. Um, look, I think the thing that's exciting about this year is that a lot of times we are, as Democrats, sort of, you know, banging the fear bell only, and we don't necessarily have um, a list of things that we have already done that we want to that we want voters to know. And this year, I feel like we are not only an opposition party in the sense that there is real fascism at our door, and we have to work and make sure we keep the House, add to the Senate and prepare ourselves for another two years of accomplishments. But we also are a proposition party. We're not just an opposition party. We're also a proposition party. And we're a proposition party that has delivered historic wins in a time when we had the narrowest margins. I don't think people understand. We've got four votes in the House. At times, we only had three votes in the House, three vote margin in the House. In the Senate, it's zero. And it is a 50-50 tied Senate. And so um, I think what we've been able to do is particularly remarkable. And you've mentioned uh, some of these things, but I just want to 
do my 30 second spiel because I really think it's not just the names of the bills. It's what we've accomplished, right? 70% of Americans are vaccinated. We cut hunger by 32% in America. We cut child poverty by 40% in America. We brought unemployment down to the lowest level in over half a century. We created 10 million new jobs. We passed the first ever gun safety uh, legislation. We, for the first time, Stefan, you know how much we've pushed on this. We got Medicare to negotiate the price of prescription drugs. It's not everything, but it's a foot in the door against these big pharma companies. We put We passed a bill that puts the largest investment ever, $386 billion into climate change, addressing climate change. And I know we're going to talk about this more, but all through everything, we have also focused on racial justice and racial equity. 40% of all federal investments are going to go to disadvantaged communities, communities that have borne the brunt of um, whether it's climate change or racial injustice. And so we have really done so many things in addition to not just the legislation, but the work that the Progressive Caucus has done with the Biden administration on executive actions, canceling student debt for 43 million people across this country, 20 plus million completely canceled, another 22 or so million uh, partially canceled. That is enormous. Um, Also things like fixing the ACA glitch, um, increasing affordability of healthcare. It's not everything I want. As you know, I'm the sponsor of Medicare for All, but it's a significant step forward in terms of this work that we're doing. So I think it's just really, really important for people to understand how much we've done and how progressive this entire vision, the entire agenda of the Biden administration has been. It's not that we don't have disagreements on certain things. I'm sure we can talk about those, but really just look at and be proud of what we've accomplished because it is really because of the movement inside and outside that we've been able to do so much with, frankly, so little. Thank you for fleshing all of that out. And yes, indeed, I, I did want to ask just a couple of things about the Inflation Reduction Act. You mentioned climate. You mentioned Medicare. I'll ask you just a couple points about that. First and foremost, um, you, you mentioned that you and other members of the Progressive Caucus were happy with what the bill accomplishes on climate. I'm wondering, uh, how are you hoping to direct some of that money here in Washington? Well, the really exciting thing about the about the Inflation Reduction Act, and by the way, I did want to make the point that an indivisible was so important to this at the national level, that the Inflation Reduction Act came out of the Build Back Better Act. The Build Back Better Act would never have passed the House. It would never have been the template for the Inflation Reduction Act if the Progressive Caucus hadn't stood up and held the line and insisted that we were going to pass. By the way, another thing we did, the biggest investment in infrastructure ever with the bipartisan infrastructure bill. And so, and again, progressives absolutely critical to delivering the votes that were necessary to get that across the finish line. So in the Inflation Reduction Act, um, we have, and, and actually in the infrastructure bill too, there are a number of provisions around climate. Um, probably the ones that are most important in the Inflation Reduction Act are the tax credits that are going to really spearhead a or jumpstart an investment into clean energy technologies. This is a huge deal because 
if we are really going to be able to move quickly towards a fossil free, uh, uh, fossil fuel free uh, environment, then we are going to have to have massive investments into green energy. They need to be good union jobs, and they will be with the Inflation Reduction Act. And we are also making sure that we're addressing the inequity by providing opportunities for low-income households across the country to access tax savings, um, uh, you know, energy cost savings through many of the programs. So, for example, we will have heat pumps and uh, electric vehicles, for example, that will be able to get tax credits so people across this country can buy those things. Our electric vehicle tax credit is going to be $7,500. Um, the average family in America is going to save anywhere from $1,200 to $1,800 in energy costs. And as I said, we're investing $60 billion into environmental justice. And so you might have seen that the EPA just uh, established an Office of Civil Rights within the EPA. That is a new step that the EPA has taken, in part because the direction of funds will also be influenced by um, communities that have been disproportionately burdened. In Washington state, we will see an enormous amount of that money that will help build out our electric vehicle grid that will help take care of our shorelines, um, that address our parks um, and our oceans. Actually, there's a lot of money in there for, for that as well. So that money will flow through, in some cases, through the state, and in some cases, directly to projects that, um, that we put forward. So Washington State will see a really historic amount of money from the Inflation Reduction Act, combined with the money that we're going to see from the bipartisan infrastructure bill. Some of that is also, by the way, for shoreline preservation and things like that. So uh, it, it's it's a it's a big deal. Um, there's also coastal resilience yeah. in both the infrastructure bill and the Inflation Reduction Act. There is um, there is uh, also um, uh, some money for for forests and and I mentioned parks as well. So really, a, a pretty sweeping bill. Washington state's going to see a big part of it, but frankly, it's going to be the nation and the world that benefit by us being able to bring down fossil fuel emissions by 40% by 2030. And we have already started having the meetings with the Biden administration, the cabinet secretaries to try to get to 50% with additional executive actions that the CPC has put forward. There is so much that's being done, as you say, at the state level, at the national level, at the world level on this. And these are all the sorts of things that uh, we can be talking with voters about. Um, and, you know, thank you for providing such a, a very fulsome look at all of the things that the Democrats have done. I do want to shift over and talk about some other key issues in this year's election. And uh, first and foremost is abortion and reproductive rights. Now, we know that we saw a huge surge over the summer in women. Uh, registering to vote after the Dobbs ruling, I believe the movement was called Rovember. I'll ask you, how do you think we keep the momentum up on this issue until November? Well, this is personal for me. As you know, I'm one of the one in four women across this country who have had an abortion. I was only the second member of Congress to speak publicly about my abortion. I, Barbara Lee and Cori Bush all testified before the House Oversight Committee about our abortions, they came out and talked about their stories uh, after I had talked about mine. And I think that the um, 
the work that we are really trying to make sure that we do is to remind people again about um, the need for people to show their anger through voting. So row, row, row your vote. Um, this is a uh, this is a really important time for us, and the path forward is really clear. It isn't that we're saying that you know vote for us and we're not going to do anything. We're actually we've made enormous progress on carving out at least the filibuster. You know, I believe we should eliminate the filibuster, yep. but at a minimum, carving out the filibuster for the John Lewis Voting Rights Act and for codifying Roe v. Wade, or hopefully something uh, you know e- e- something even better. But the the idea here is that if we hold the House and we get two more seats in the Senate, we have the majority we need in the Senate to be able to carve out um, an exception to the filibuster to codify Roe. And that's the path forward because we are stuck with the darn filibuster in the Senate unless we have 51 votes to overturn it. Well, a year ago, we did not even have 48 votes. Today, we've got 48 votes. If we get two more and Kamala Harris and President Biden have already said that they support carving out the filibuster for codifying Roe, then we will be able to carve out the filibuster, carve out an exception to the filibuster and codify this into law. So this is a real path forward. And I think that's what people have to remember, because I said at the time of the Dobbs decision that the Republicans had really underestimated the fury, the wrath and the power of women, pregnant people, families, allies across the country, and that we would see that at the voting booth. And in fact, we saw it in Kansas, a state that nobody expected that initiative um, uh, to eliminate um, reproductive freedom for women across Kansas. Nobody expected that to fail, and it did. And so I think that this is a really, really important moment for us to see the power and to seize the power by turning out at the voting booth. And we can't let people either be in despair so much that they don't realize how close we are to getting this win, if we can get two more seats in the Senate and hold the House, but also to recognize that um, our anger needs to be fueled towards a productive future that we can assure for other pregnant people um, going forward. You were reminding people of their power. I also would remind everybody watching, listening, just how much work Indivisible did on moving our senators all across the country on the filibuster. So this is a team effort. We're all in this together and we do get results. And I think it's very, very important, particularly right now, to remember that sort of thing. I'll just ask you very briefly, and I know we unfortunately have a very limited period of time tonight, and there's so much that I want to ask you about, so I'm choosing my questions very carefully. But I will ask you, how are you thinking about the other threats to our 14th Amendment rights posed by this Supreme Court. We know that uh, that Clarence Thomas has transmitted that there are other rights uh, that that he's going to uh, put in in his crosshairs. How are you thinking about this? Well, exactly like you said. I mean, in his concurrence, Justice Thomas made it really clear that he doesn't want the Supreme Court to stop at abortion. And just like we saw Roe overturned, I think everybody has to be aware that critical cases that we've considered settled precedent until now, like Griswold, Lawrence, and Obergefell could face a similar attack. These are the cases that decided our right to contraception, 
to privacy in our home, um, cases that legalize gay marriage in our country, respectively. And we in the House have moved to pass bills that would codify all of these fundamental rights. And the Senate may just yet pass a bill that would codify our right to marry who we love, but we can't be assured of that. And that is, again, a wake-up call for people across this country. Don't think that with this extremist mega Republican um, Senate and party that they're going and Supreme Court that they're going to stop with abortion. Abortion was just the beginning, and um, several Republicans, not just Justice Thomas, have made it clear that they want a, a nationwide ban on abortion. That they don't want to preserve the right to marry who we love that they aren't even sure that they want to preserve the right to contraception. So um, I think we just have to be very aware of this being just the tip of the iceberg, what we're seeing. And again, we need to vote and turn out and turn our anger into power of the ballot and of the vote and ultimately of, um, of better policy for justice. I think that's exactly right. And I, I think we don't really want to be so uh, focused on our anger as being our motivating uh, factor here. However, before we move past that, I do want to ask you about threats to our democracy. So I'm, I, I would imagine that you saw a recent Washington Post article showing that some 299 of this year's GOP candidates say that they believe the 2020 election was stolen. Um, this is chilling. It obviously represents an enormous threat. My question to you is, how do you think we can effectively convey to enough voters, and in particular the swing voters we need to get this through to, that our very democracy is on the line in this election? What do you think? Well, um, I think that um, I have never been so afraid of what is going to happen in our country as I was on January 6th. I was trapped in the gallery, as you know. Um, and I have seen the power of the big lie, the power of a cult party that cares nothing for our constitution um, and simply follows uh, one person's um, uh, outrageous, dangerous threats to our society and tries to steal an election. And uh, today we have more than half of voters will actually have an election denier on their ballot next month. That's a stunning, stunning statistic to me. And it really shows how deeply the GOP has changed from a party of any principles, even conservative principles that I may not agree with, but still a party of some principle to the party of the big lie. And the fact that the GOP House majority and Senate in some cases have endorsed these election deniers is terrifying to me. And so I think for us, what we again have to remember is that democracy takes tending. It takes attention. It takes action. It takes each of us actually giving our time, talent, and treasure to protecting it and preserving it. And, um, I think sometimes maybe we've been lulled in this country into thinking that our democracy is here to stay, that we're the, you know, the world's oldest democracy, that we know how it's done, nothing is ever going to turn it over. 
And I think if if anyone needed a wake up call, it was there on January 6th. It was actually there way before January 6th, but it was certainly there on January 6th. And it's continued in the days since. So as we deliver the message, again, this is the opposition proposition message that we need to get to swing voters. And by the way, when I say swing voters, I'm thinking um, of uh, every voter that we can possibly reach, suburban women, uh, independents, but also our young people, our folks of color who may not swing to Republicans, but could certainly swing right out to the couch um, because Mm. they haven't always been welcomed or spoken to in a way that motivates them. So I really think we're talking about everyone here. There's a place for everyone who believes in democracy in um, in this election. And I think what we need to do is the opposition proposition message. We need to lay out what's at stake, how dangerous this moment is, lay out the truth and try to beat back some of the lies that are out there. And then we also have to speak to the proposition of what we've already done and what we can do to accomplish a society where everyone can thrive, not just survive, and where everyone, white, black, and brown, has a place in uh, in in our in our country, in our society. Another uh, contributing factor to all of this is the January. You mentioned January sixth. The report is due out in in a couple of days. We're not exactly sure how many at this point. I know you're a close colleague of uh, Congressman Jamie Raskin. We have a lot of fans of his. Uh, my fan. I'm a fan of his. Cat is as well. Uh, he sits on the January sixth committee. We know that there are some planned actions, but I'm wondering what would you like to see people doing uh, when the report comes out to really drive focus on this? Well, I think the most important thing is taking the time to read the findings, you know, go through and watch the hearings. I've watched every single one of them. There's another one happening, as you know, on Thursday morning, um, which may be the last one. I'm not I'm not sure. It seems that it may be. Um, And I think that they have been so compelling in essentially taking a number of jigsaw pieces of the puzzle and putting them all together. So there isn't a single hole in this pattern of what happened, uh, what did the former president do to really fuel uh, the big lie leading up to the election? And then that led to January 6th, directly fueled again by the former president. And that is still continuing to happen. And I think that the January 6th committee has really laid that out with testimony from top cabinet level members of the former administration, top people who were in the room and fans of the former president. These are not Democrats that we're talking about. These are Republicans who were were part of the administration. And I think that it lends a level of credibility to everything that this isn't partisan, that we've got Liz Cheney, Adam Kinzinger, and other Republicans who understand that there is no place for partisanship when it comes to protecting our democracy, when it comes to rejecting an insurrection, when it comes to ensuring that the that the people who um, conducted the worst attack on the United States Capitol since the War of 1812 are held to account. So read the report and um, internalize how close we came to losing our democracy on that day. Um, and and then the beauty of our democracy is that it's based on choice, our choice. And it is our right, our freedom at this point to cast a ballot in favor of the candidates that we believe in the most. And that has to take into account the most basic tenet 
of our democracy that is currently in jeopardy. So I guess my hope is that people will read the findings, will talk about the findings with their loved ones and their community and organize people around them to make sure that we don't let the election deniers win. Maybe have some watch parties for some of the key moments of the um, January 6th committee hearings if, if people haven't watched them, because this is a really important conversation as well as a moment to act. We do know that there are some planned actions and that Indivisible is uh, setting the wheels in motion on some of that. And so uh, Kat and I will be keeping folks abreast of that uh, over the coming days and weeks. I'll just ask you, and this is, of course, a, an unknown, but just how much do you think the release of this report can and, and really ultimately should impact this election? Well, I think it should. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, 3,000%, I think it should. Um, I think one of the fears I have is that there is a lot of misinformation. There are a lot of people who have dug in. Um, I do say that use the word cult um, uh, intentionally because people have spoken about um, the cult that they got into with the big lie. And um, they have, it, it, you know, trying to leave it, They've spoken about it in terms of similar, uh, similar to similar experience to trying to leave a cult. Yeah. And I, I think that that is the challenge we have. There are a lot of people who are very stuck in um, their beliefs and where they are. And even if those beliefs are simply not true, not based in fact, not based in reality. But um, and these are very, you know, these are. Uh, uh, people of all kinds, very intelligent people. Um, you know, it, it isn't it isn't a question of lack of intelligence or anything like that. These are unfortunately just people who have bought into a big lie and are social media companies and, um, uh, you know, a lot of the online uh, news that people get is pushing people in that direction, whatever is is most um uh, you know, sort of toxic, but gets a response, unfortunately, get, goes viral. And that ends up being what people see. So I, um, that's my fear is that we have a much smaller group to work with, because people are sort of stuck where they are stuck in some cases. But that's not everybody. And I believe that talking to your neighbors, talking to your friends, having these conversations, using facts to back it up, um, you are the people that can make a difference because these are all of our family members, our relatives, our friends. Um, and I know that personally with my own family, you know, it's, it's been a very tough several years, but I do believe we can make a difference. And I do believe we can bring people back to fact and, and reason um, instead of the big lie and cults. I sincerely want to believe that that is true, and I think all of us, you're speaking to all of us, and, and the uh, the difficulties that we've, that we've had with our own families, and, you know, honestly, who knew that uh, uh, social media with uh, algorithms that have a profit motive at their core could, could be so bad? Who knew? <laughs> who knew where all this could ultimately Well, I'm be? on the antitrust subcommittee, as you know, and I, uh, yeah. I, uh, I'm the vice chair there, and I've, uh, you know, we've taken on this issue in, in a big way in terms of monopolies and the power that monopolies can have and our tech companies are right there in the middle of all of that too so um 
I, I want to ask you just about a couple of other things that are coming up on the doors. One of is co- one of them is cost of living, and we're hearing from swing voters that they're, they're looking to blame Democrats for things like inflation and the rising cost of living. These are global uh, events and, and trends. But, but I'm wondering, how do you think we can effectively put the blame where it belongs in a way that will resonate with voters? Well, I think one of the things is just to remind people about where we were and how far we've come. I mean, the pandemic really roiled not just our country, but our world. Um, Just in the United States, um, claiming a million lives, devastating countless others, people who still are suffering from long COVID, um, you know, small businesses that had to shut down. Uh, people finding themselves without a steady paycheck or uh, health insurance. Um, 27 million people lost their health insurance at the same time that they lost their job. You know, the the inability to pay rent and sort of all the anxiety that that brought as this highly contagious, deadly virus was spreading across our country. And so we were in crisis, but it was because of Democrats and President Biden that we were able to pass the American Rescue Plan, a $1.9 trillion um, recovery bill for the country. We got money in people's pockets and we spurred the fastest economic recovery of any country in the world. I mean, all the economists were not predicting that we would be where where we are today. Most economists were predicting that we would continue to be um, in a place of uh, high unemployment, uh, much higher, double digit, uh, double of what we are today, that is, um, going into 2023 and and maybe even 2024. So we have recovered far more quickly. And the thing is that, yes, there has been inflation. We have to recognize it. Rising costs have been very tough on families because of the supply chains, because of COVID but also um, inflationary costs of housing. I mean, the single single biggest inflationary cost is housing. And that has continued to go up. And if you remember, Build Back Better, we had a $150 billion investment into housing that would have been the largest investment in housing. Childcare has continued to go up. We had in Build Back Better, 7%, you know, no family pays more than 7% for childcare, that we would have universal childcare and pre-K because we knew that those costs were substantial. So inflation is very much here. It has been brought down substantially. Um, President Biden has done uh, uh, an important job of addressing many of these inflationary costs and trying to help by bringing down the cost of childcare, bringing down the cost of prescription drugs. Um, But we do still have some. And my belief is that the Fed needs to be very careful about continuing to raise interest rates because um, I, I worry that we may be sent into a recession, that a lot of people will lose their jobs, and that the cost of housing is actually getting harder and harder for people to bear because of increasing mortgage rates. So um, we do have more work to do. Uh, We can't deny that inflation is here, but we also just have to think about how far we've come and um, that we were coming out of multiple crises at the same time and that this is still the fastest recovery. And then we got to get to work to try to fix some of these other costs. That's why we need another two years because we can extend the child tax credit. We can pass universal childcare, universal pre-K, investments in housing. Um, all of those things will help 
families to address the the inflationary costs that we may continue to see for a little bit because we're the world is still recovering from from covid from supply chains and from all the other things that we've been coming out of I will just ask you candidly, do you think it's worth addressing with voters that the Democrats seem to be the only ones who are at the table trying to address this issue? It seems like there's there's been a lot of recalcitrance from uh, GOP uh, members completely, of Congress. Yeah? Completely. And even look at the fact that Republicans are trying to claim credit for money that's coming into their districts. Through- how do we respond to that? Honestly, <laughs> we're not seeing that as much here in Washington state, but across the country, how do you respond to that when, when you have these members of the GOP members of Congress who have voted against the very things that are helping their constituents and they come back and say hey look what we've did what, what, what we've done how do you, you respond to, keep, to that you just have to keep calling it out you oh, have to man. show on a big screen their no vote for that bill i mean right. even the american rescue plan you know that was passed with not a single republican vote and yet the republicans are claiming that they are helping small businesses survive the pandemic. They didn't help the small businesses survive. It was it was Democrats who passed the American Rescue Plan and uh, and helped um, small businesses to get to get funding, you know, uh, into 2021, um, 2022. So I, I just think you have to keep calling it out. It's it's uh, infuriating. And I heard it in your <laughs> in your voice. I'm a little exasperated. <laughs> It's late I, in the game. I, <laughs> I'm not hiding it anymore very well. I'm about to break into expletives at any point. So listen, and, and speaking of which, we know that the GOP is going to do their best. They're already doing their best to scare and divide the American people on public safety and immigration, both of which, of course, are proxies for race. We saw this uh, uh, most recently in these horrific comments by Marjorie Taylor Greene and Tommy Tuberville. I'll ask you how Democrats should be talking about this issue in a way that doesn't play into GOP framing, because I just feel like this is so important and this is part of their game plan. You and I have have uh, I've had the privilege of speaking with you over the last uh, three election cycles, and this always comes up. How do we deal with this in, in a way that is decisive? Well, it's very frustrating because they're just pouring money into these ads that are just, uh, you know, fear mongering, racist, xenophobic um, and untrue. All of those things. And uh, but they pour money into it and these ads run on TV and people see them and they have an effect. And so, of course, you know, I want to get money out of politics. But I think that um, what we need to do is really make sure that we are addressing a couple of things, and I'll talk about public safety, and then and then maybe immigration, uh, you know, as a as an addendum to that. Because uh, on public safety, what we all know is that there is absolutely a role for law enforcement. Um, nobody is saying that there isn't. What people have been talking about, and what we all know to be true is that we for for the public to feel safe to have true community safety we can't leave law enforcement to do it on their own we need to make sure that there are a, a whole of government approach that there's a whole of government approach to public safety that in, it includes mental health that's why we passed a public safety package recently that included Katie Porter's bill on mental health it included Stephen Horsford's bill that is a whole of government approach to supportive services um, working with law enforcement and that also included by the way a bill to invest more resources into small police departments, small law enforcement departments, but with accountability. Now, not all the accountability we need, we do need the George Floyd Justice and Policing 
Act, which the, the House already passed through, because we need everyone to feel safe and we need to have real accountability around law enforcement that includes banning no-knock warrants and some of the other things where we've seen um, real problems happen. But nobody is saying that we don't need public safety. We all believe that. In fact, who is it that voted against um, funding law enforcement in our appropriations bill. It was many of these same Republicans. Who is it that's calling to defund the FBI? It's these Republicans. Who is it that hasn't supported Capitol Police who were the targets and killed and wounded in the insurrection? It was these Republicans. So I think we have to be really clear about who it is that supports public safety, Democrats, and who it is that has consistently opposed um, all efforts, not just to fund a holistic, real problem, you know, a real problem-solving approach to public safety, where everybody gets to feel safe, including Black folks who have been targeted by some law enforcement officers. Um, but it is it is really this distinction that we have to make on immigration. And we can, by the way, we can say we funded in the appropriations package. Um, something like $15 billion for law enforcement. We passed this entire public safety package. Nobody can say the Democrats don't want to support law enforcement. We're just saying, don't leave it to them to do it on their own. They've told us they don't want to be the ones responding to mental health crises and, and homelessness and housing issues. They need to be focused on the most serious uh, crimes. That should be their their job. That's what they want. That's what we want. Now, on immigration, this is this is where I get <laughs> just so much ire comes, you know, steam is coming out of my ears because um, I have worked on this issue for 20 years. As you know, I started the, the largest immigrant advocacy organization here in Washington state. Um, I was part of pushing for comprehensive immigration reform for for decades now. And my conviction is that, unfortunately, the Republicans get too much from using immigrants as a political football to want to actually try to fix the immigration system. Immigrants are coming to the United States because they have a legal right to seek asylum according to human rights laws, because we have traditionally, until Donald Trump came along, it was a bipartisan issue for us to be um, a, a part, a significant part of resettling refugees in the world. Um, it was a part of our identity to say that immigrants from all over the world come to America, including me, by the way, to seek a better life, to seek opportunity, and that we um, we welcome immigrants here who have contributed so much to our country. But we have not passed a comprehensive immigration reform that is just and humane for decades. There is no line to get in to come to the United States to be with your family. There isn't even a process to get green cards um, or work visas in fields that we desperately need in the United States. So we have passed numerous bills, including the DREAM Act, the Farmworker Modernization Bill. We've passed a bill to allow spouses to, to work of people who are in H-1B visas. We have done so much of this work in the House, but because of the filibuster, the Senate refuses to bring it up. And instead, 
they just punt immigrants around with xenophobic racist language because it serves their political purposes. So again, if we could eliminate the filibuster, we could get significant parts of immigration reform done, keep families together, have a humane approach to immigration where we actually can track who's coming into the country um, and everyone would be safer. And by the way, we would get rid of those um, even the need to keep people in detention um, or, you know, minimize the number of people in detention and deportation proceedings, because we would have a humane system that actually works and people would be able to come in and apply rather than sitting in a jail or private detention facility, a private uh, immigration detention facility for profit detention facility, just awaiting their bond hearings. You know, you've mentioned in your comment here so much uh, GOP uh, hypocrisy, uh, which is something that they often don't pay a price for. And it is my dear hope uh, this year, gang, that we actually, and the only price that they can pay that will matter is at the ballot box. So I would love for people to keep that in mind. Just a couple more questions and we'll get to some Q&A here because I know we're short on time. So as you know, we have national focus uh, here in Washington on two of our races with uh, Dr. Kim Schreier in the eighth, Marie Glusenkamp Perez in the third. We have had uh, town halls with both of them. I will provide those in the show notes. They're wonderful, wonderful uh, candidates, and I would love for you to hear from them. Um, and they are both running against MAGA Republicans. In the case of Marie Glusen Camp Perez, a Trump-backed MAGA Republican. I'll just ask you, how are you seeing Washington State's role in this year's election? It is absolutely critical. And I would just add Senator Patty Murray in because that race is tighter than, than I would like to see. So both in the House and the Senate, we have very important races. Dr. Kim Schreier uh, has been a wonderful and critical voice in Congress. She is a great representative for the people of the 8th Congressional District. She is the only pediatrician in Congress. And um, her perspective, her compassion, her grit are really needed in our delegation and in the Democratic Caucus. And as you said, Marie Glusenkamp Perez is facing off against an election denier, um, Joe Kent, who won over Jamie Herrera Butler because Jamie voted for impeachment, because she's spoken out about the Trump big lie as a Republican. And so she was punished by Republican voters who went off the cliff with Donald Trump and election deniers. And so now that's what we have. Um, and we have a real opportunity to elect Marie. We need to make sure that she wins. Um, she is an incredible uh, voice for working people. Um, you know, she, she there's a wonderful video uh, that I had put out on Twitter that was done by More Perfect Union that really tells her story beautifully. Um, and hopefully we can we can circulate that to you all if you if you haven't seen Would it. Would love to have that. Would love to have that. Yeah, sure. We'll put it in the chat. Maybe uh, Carly can put it, find it and put it in the chat. But I think that these are two races where we have a real opportunity to win one seat in the House and to keep one seat in the House. So uh, we really need, and with Patty's race, um, she's running against uh, Tiffany Smiley, who um, we have to be really clear, again, is a, is very dangerous when it comes to abortion, when it comes to a lot of the um, election-denying um, uh, sort of talking points. And, and we really need to make sure that Senator Murray gets back. So we um, are really asking people to make sure that, first of all, that you're registered to vote, 
Um, you can register in person up until Election Day in Washington, or you can go online and register by October 31st. We want you to know who your candidates are and make sure you vote up and down the ballot from the federal to the state to the local. Every single candidate matters. Every single vote matters. And then make sure your friends and family are registered to vote and help them if they aren't. And then organize for candidates that you believe in. We have our campaign does door knocking, phone banking. Um, we train you if you've never done it. Uh, we've worked with Indivisible on many of uh, you know of these actions and activities. And um, I think it's really important to organize for candidates that you believe in and and to fight in these races to make sure that these folks get reelected. It really matters. I just want to maybe say that field matters so much. You know, when I ran in 2016, it was a nine-way primary, some very good candidates. Um, it was tough primary. It was actually the most expensive non-swing district race in the country. And because we're a top two um, state and it went all the way to the general election. And I was one of the first candidates in the country to run for Congress and run a serious field campaign. You know, hundreds of thousands of doors and phone calls um, a th over a thousand volunteers. We've kept our volunteers engaged um, because we don't think that democracy is a transactional once in a once in two year um, or once in four year relationship. This is something that has to happen all the time. And there are races across the country and leaders to be um, developed and skills to be developed um, with all of our volunteers. So I just encourage people to get um, to get engaged. We are going to turn things over to Kat now for some Q&A, and then we will return to you for some closing comments before we do so. Uh, Kat, over to you. Awesome sauce. Thank you. Uh, first audience question. Mary Purdy asks, what is your plan for working across the aisle to help Republicans get on board to address the climate crisis? Well, what's really interesting, Mary, is that there is a Republican climate caucus and it's led by John Curtis from Utah, who's a, a, actually a, a very reasonable guy. I've been on a CODEL with him, and he and I just introduced a, um, a voluntary waiver bill uh, around suicide prevention so people can voluntarily sign up for a do not sell list for guns. Um, and we're, we were really hoping that we could get it uh, to the floor this session, and we're still working on that. Um, but he's he he is not a climate denier. And there is a small caucus of Republicans that believes in this. As you know, the infrastructure bill was bipartisan, not tons of votes, but some votes. There were climate provisions within that. The Inflation Reduction Act, unfortunately, was not bipartisan. It was every single Democratic vote, but no Republican votes. But I really believe that if you look at what's happening with the heat waves, with uh, Hurricane Ian, you know, the tragedy we're still seeing in Florida, Puerto Rico, um, all across the country, you cannot continue to um, deny climate. If you if if you do, you look like an idiot because your community is being decimated by climate change. And so I think we're just going to have to continue to do whatever we can as Democrats. That's why it's really important that the president is taking executive action. And we need to continue to try to work with Republicans. But I think it, you see the challenge with a with a party that just doesn't want any progress because they don't want Democrats who are in control to get any credit. And that's just unfortunate. But we'll keep trying. 
Uh, Vivian Corneliuson asks, and this is something that I think that you will be tempted to give a really fulsome answer on, <laughs> how will we stop the privatization of traditional Medicare and also Washington's water rights? Oh, my goodness. Uh, I, I am going to try to keep my answer shorter because um, I know we have a lot of questions to get through. But um, look, this is a really, really big deal. Um, you know that there was uh, there have been continued attacks on Medicare. It is part of some of the Republican senators have even rolled out um, entire agendas about how they're going to attack Medicare and Social Security. When Donald Trump was in office, he actually put in place a privatization of Medicare that we are trying to end called ACO Reach. Um, and that is a big campaign across the country. We have been trying to get the White House to end the program completely. They've made some changes. We really want it to be ended. Um, we do not think that Medicare costs a fraction uh, the costs of Medicare are a fraction of the cost of private insurance companies that essentially have been contracted with to privatize Medicare. And the thing about that is the, um, the amount spent doesn't go to the patient. The amount spent on Medicare recipient gets reduced by 40% or in some cases even more um, by these private insurance companies. So they get more money, but they spend less of it on you. And so that is what happens with a for-profit privatized Medicare system. And so we're going to continue to make sure. And once again, the threat is if Republicans take control of the House and the Senate and or the Senate, then this is their agenda item. We need to make sure that that does not happen. We need Democrats to stay in control. And then we need to pass um, Social Security 2300. That is John Larson's bill that I have endorsed and the Progressive Caucus has been working so hard to get across the finish line because that also revamps Social Security. It provides increases um, for inflation and other things. It, it doesn't completely scrap the cap, but it uh, dramatically changes the cap so that the wealthiest are still paying their fair share. On Medicare, you know, in the Build Back Better Act, we uh, we think Medicare should include dental, vision, and hearing. How crazy is it that um, we allow people to get to the age where they desperately need dental, vision, and hearing, and somehow they're not eligible for it? We think the age for Medicare should be lowered. The eligibility age should be lowered to to at least sixty, if not fifty. So there are a number of positive changes that we want to make to both systems. That's what Democrats want to do is help people get more benefit from these um, Social Security and Medicare programs, these popular programs, but Republicans want to strip them away. Uh, and last question, Alpana Banerjee asks about privacy and data protection legislation. And I'll just preface this by letting folks know that there's an entire suite of proposed legislation out there. I'm hearing that we're not going to get votes on them until after the election. But to Alpana's question, um, what are we doing about Privacy and Data Protection Act 811, uh, 8, 8111, excuse me, 8111, and the Fourth Amendment is not for sale, Act 1265 bills. Uh, and she reiterates that how urgently and desperately we need both of these to be passed. I couldn't agree more, Alpana. And we actually tried to get some of those to the floor, um, a data uh, privacy bill. Um, and I don't know the numbers exactly, but also Sarah Jacobs bill 
that um, also would protect data privacy in the case of abortion providers and abortion clients. Um, and so we've been working very hard to get these to the floor. Um, we have not been able to get the votes that we need, so we haven't done it yet, but it's absolutely on our list to try to get done as soon as possible after the election when we go back. So we're not in session until after November 8th, but my hope is that we can still we can still use the lame duck session to pass these uh, privacy protection bills because they're they are so important. And Jason and Martin, I'm sorry we didn't have time to get to your questions, but the Congresswoman staff will definitely get back to you on your questions because we'll make sure to pass those over. Stefan, back over to you. Well, Congresswoman, we have just a couple of moments uh, remaining here, but I would just love your your final thoughts as we, uh, as I said, ballots are dropping in in ten days. What are what are your final thoughts for us? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me tonight, um, and. Um, apologies for my fulsome answers, as, as Kat said, because I care so much about all of these things. It's sometimes hard for me to give a short answer, but we expect nothing less. We expect nothing less. <laughs> I'm kind of a policy wonk, as you know. Um, look, I, I think that we know that these midterm elections are going to be one of the most consequential elections for our country and that there's a lot at stake. Um, the right to safe and legal abortion, the right to vote, the right to free and fair elections. And as I said, at the same time, Republicans have made it very clear what they will do if they end up in the majority. They will gut Social Security and Medicare. They'll raise taxes on working families, and they're going to enact xenophobic, racist, anti-immigrant policies all the time while peddling the big lie. I... Um, it's hard to remember this, but I was elected six years ago, the same night as Donald Trump. And it has been a rough six years, the next four years before Democrats took control of the White House and the House and the Senate. Our democracy was under attack. Um, there has been a fueling of racial hatred and white supremacy. Um, there has been a ignoring of climate devastation. Um, and all of that culminated in a deadly insurrection that was incited by a president of the United States who refused a peaceful transfer of power. So I say that just to remind people again of what was on the line two years ago and how you all, indivisible, indivisibles across this country, groups across this country, worked to mobilize people to win, to vote and to win big. And at the end of the day, we won because people understood what was at stake and they turned out and they said, yes, we understand democracy needs our vote. We won because the movement had an agenda that energized people to believe not just that we were better than the other guys, but that we would actually deliver if we were given the chance. And I submit to you, and I hope you talk about this, the Democrats delivered we delivered everything that I mentioned, um, the rescue plan, vaccinated a nation, save small businesses, uh, cut child poverty in half, the biggest investment in infrastructure, um, all of the work that we have done, canceling student debt, marijuana convictions, uh, you know, getting pardoning thousands of people with federal convictions for simple possession of marijuana and the Inflation Reduction Act. That's what we delivered. But we got so close to delivering even more. And that is the work that is right around the corner if we can hold the House and expand the Senate. That's what's on the line. And the good news is that we've won before. We're going to win again. 
And that's why I am, uh, I told uh, Stefan and Kit before we started, I just came back from Michigan and Minnesota. I'm going across the country to Pennsylvania, Georgia, Oregon, California. And we're talking uh, that we're talking about the fact we're spreading the word about the fact that our agenda isn't just what people have a right to. It's about people, you and me, us, we living all together in a democracy that respects each of us and you can help. So as we fight to protect and expand our democratic majority in Congress, I want to invite you to work with me on a race in Texas for a fantastic woman of color candidate, um, Michelle Vallejo, who is running in Texas's 15th congressional district. She is going to be a critical voice for us in Congress as we fight to raise wages and lower costs and preserve our freedoms. Um, My campaign organizer, Carly, is gonna put the link in the chat right now so that you can register for that. We also have some really exciting phone banks coming up for Kim Schreier, uh, some door knocking and some phone banks for Kim Schreier, for Marie Glusenkamp-Perez, Um, And we've got some very exciting guests who are coming to Washington State who will also be joining us and helping us to generate energy in the next couple of weeks. So sign up with Carly. If you can't do tomorrow for Michelle, we've got lots of other work for you to do. It is a community of people who believe in the possible, who believe in what we can do. Each one of us um, utilizing the power that we have I know a book called Use the Power You Have, um, and it is uh, it is really about that ability to create change, to hold our democracy, to being a democracy, a place that allowed, really allowed, invited a, a 16-year-old girl with nothing in her pockets to come alone to the United States of America and all these years later be um, a congresswoman, the first South Asian American woman elected to the United States. That's the opportunity that everybody should have and Democrats will deliver that if we can hold the house, expand the Senate and get the rest of the work done. So thank you all so much for um, doing that work and for holding that hope, that vision, that possibility, that energy, that excitement for the next however many days we have left before um, the election. Well, that was utterly electrifying. It was everything that we hoped that it could be tonight. Um, you mentioned it's been six years. It has been my honor uh, to be in dialogue with you off and on over the last six years, uh, if, you, if you can believe. I, I was I, I had hair at the beginning of all this, so that, that's what the last six years have done to me. But uh, listen, I just want to say thank you so much. We really, really uh, are are very much uh, buoyed by you, and, and we, we, just, we, we appreciate you beyond words. Congresswoman Jayapal, thank you so much. Thank you all so much. Thank you, Indivisible. And Kat, I'm going to turn things over to you now with uh, some calls to action. And I know that you have a little bit more information about Michelle uh, Vallejo in Texas 15th, right? Yes, indeedy. I dropped it into the chat, as did Carly. You can phone bank with Congresswoman Jayapal and Michelle Vallejo tomorrow, October 12th from 4 to 6 p.m. Pacific to call on voters in the 15th Congressional District of Texas. That uh, link has been dropped into chat a couple of times. There's also three additional actions that you can take. Here's another virtual action with Seattle Indivisible. The SI Anti-Voter Suppression Midterms Phone Bank with the Center for Common Ground is Sunday from 2 to 2, 2 to 3.30 p.m. 
p.m. Pacific. I dropped that link in already. And we've got two really fun looking in-person events here in the chat. In-person letter writing party at Optimism Brewing. If you haven't been there, it's very good. Uh, that's Sunday the 23rd at 5 p.m. Uh, RSVP is in the chat. And also Seattle Indivisible Volunteers will be uh, canvassing uh, in person to save the house on Sunday the 30th in North King County uh, for the for Congresswoman Dr. Kim Schreier, uh, which is exciting. Now, many of you know that, that Indivisible had a big uh, canvas for Dr. Schreier down in Covington this weekend. And I would love to see an even bigger indivisible turnout for this next one and that is four actions i bet you there's something for everyone in there thank you all everybody and that'll do it for this week the executive producer of the show is kat pipkin if you would like to see a video version of this podcast head to facebook.com slash indivisible podcast the email address for the show is indivisible podcast at gmail.com special thanks to Lori kowal and as always my thanks to you for listening i'm stephan cox and we'll talk to you next time bye